Morning, everyone. Good to see you today. In this message series, we, um, if you've been with us, you know we've been looking at the unique assignments that God has given to us as a church, and we're calling these assignments God dreams. And here's our working definition of a God dream. If you haven't been with us before, it's a vision of the future that, first of all, begins in the mind of God and then is given to us. Now, we all, of course, we dream about the future. It's part of what it means to be human. But church is the unique place where God calls us to dream his dreams, and then work together as a team to see those dreams become reality. Whenever God gives us a vision of the future as a church, it occurs inside of a frame. It has limits to it. God dreams, of course, are massive, but we are, we are limited. And so God gives us a doable part of what he wants to see accomplished in the future. And the frame that marks the doable limits has four sides to it. And the first side we looked at is our mission. This answers the simple question of what. What is it that we are doing? It's a basic phrase that helps us focus on what we are trying to accomplish, the dream that God has given us. And this is our phrase, thoughtfully inviting broken people to experience transformation in Christ. Everything that we do as a church can be summarized by that phrase and points to that phrase. The next side we looked at is our values. This answers the why question. Why are we doing this? Turns out God is not only interested in what we do, but also our motives. Why are we doing this? And then we turned our attention to the next side, which is our strategy. This answers the how question. How are we going to do this? How do we get traction in accomplishing the dream that God has given to us as a church? And now we are finally looking at the last side of this frame, which is the measures side. This answers the when question. When are we successful? If this dream that God has given us is realized, what will it look like? How will we know if we're successful? Actually, the question is not what will it look like, it's what will we look like? And that's because God dreams never show up as an it. It's never about inanimate objects like buildings or programs. That may be a part of what God wants us to accomplish, but God dreams are always about we. It's always about people, not buildings or programs. In Galatians 5.14, we read this, For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. What it's saying is that you could summarize everything in the Bible by this, this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the reason the Bible is so big is because loving your neighbor as yourself is really tough, and it's really complicated. And if it's just a simple statement or feeling, well, then we can do that, but it's much more than that. Loving your neighbor as yourself. And so the dreams that God gives are always measured by this command. If we are growing in love, then we are succeeding. But we tend to think, especially in this culture, as love as being primarily an emotion, and that makes love pretty impossible to measure because emotions are very fickle. But in the Bible, love is not primarily emotion. There are emotions involved in it, but love is is a very clearly defined set of actions. And it is measured in three particular categories. How, first of all, we relate to others one-on-one in our one-on-one relationships. How we work together with others. How we team together. And then thirdly, how we share the good news about Jesus. How we share the gospel. And so if we are being transformed by Christ, that's the word that's used in our mission, if if that's really occurring, this is where it's going to show up. Transformation will be demonstrated in the way we, first of all, relate to each other, and then how we team together 
And then whether or not we keep this good news all to ourselves because we really don't care about anyone else or whether we go out and we share the good news, the gospel about Jesus Christ. Now, last Sunday, we looked at kind of that first area. We looked at four particular ways that love is demonstrated as we relate to one another. And what the New Testament in particular says love looks like in a one-on-one context. Now, today, we're going to shift our attention to the three ways that love is demonstrated as we team together, particularly as a church. You know, it's as we relate rightly to each other that trust is grown. If we relate wrongly to each other, trust is damaged. And trust is the foundation on which a relationship rises or falls. So that's why one of the things we talked about last week was clearing up relationships, because we make mistakes. If we're not going to clear up relationships, then trust cannot be rebuilt. So it's as we relate rightly to each other, trust is the, is the product of that. It's as we team together, what we're going to look at today, that respect is grown. Respect is what is built on the foundation of trust. If you don't have trust, you're not going to be able to relate to someone long enough to build a respect for them. Mutual respect isn't going to happen. And mutual respect is what allows us to accomplish much more together. Now, respect is earned on a team. It's earned on the the field of play, not by watching from the stands. So if you join a church or really any team, that doesn't automatically mean you've suddenly gained respect. Now, what that means is that you now have the chance, you have the opportunity to earn respect. How does that occur? Well, there's three ways that occurs. We're going to look at these this morning. Respect grows on a team as you contribute to the team, as you give to the team, and as you follow that team. Now, these three can apply to any team, a family team, a work team, a little league team, but we're going to apply it to a church team this morning. So we team together as a church as we, first of all, participate in the work of the church. Here's what it says in Ephesians 4, verse 16. From him, the whole body, we talked about this last week, the body of Christ is interchangeable for the church in the New Testament. So from him, the whole body, the body of Christ, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love, there's that important word, as Bevan does a good job speaking on Sunday. (laughs) No, as each part does its work. You know, if I don't do at least an adequate job on Sunday, everybody's going to notice. If I don't show up, everybody will notice. But let's say you have a job this morning at Seabreeze. Maybe you're helping out in the kids' ministry, or maybe you're helping with the the parking team, and you don't show up. What's going to happen? Well, it'll, we'll have to scramble to get it covered, or maybe we'll just have to do without. But I doubt that anyone in this room would notice. Hey, you know what? There was only four people that waved at me as, why, as I drove in today. I, I, I don't know how I get parked my car without that, that fifth person waving at me. And if you don't have kids in the kids' ministry, you may never know that the teacher for that day didn't show up. You wouldn't notice that. And so we begin to think that, well, those are kind of less important jobs than, than, of course, the ones that occur up here on stage. But that's not what this verse is saying. When does it say that God will grow us and build us up in love? 
It's as each part does its work. And so if this is the church that you've decided to be a part of, one of the questions that all of us who are part of this church have to answer is, what's your part? What's my part? Now, if you don't honestly know, that's okay. But the way you get to know your part is you start serving somewhere. It's kind of how you figured out what your part was in the economy, in the workforce. You know, you could either just wait for the ideal job to land on your lap, you know, and you'd be maybe never 45 or 50, or you just join the workforce and you get going and you figure it out and you can refine it as you go along. It's the same way it happens in church or in any team. You just jump in and help out somewhere and then you refine as you move forward. Now, why is it that each part has to do its work? Well, it's because on a team, a church team, any team, there are two important dynamics that are at work that occur whenever we do our part. The first is the investment dynamic. When you do your part, you are making an investment in the team. And if the team is church, you are making an investment in God's work in this world. And those simple little maybe weekly, insignificantly seeming investments accumulate over time to multiply the impact of your life. Now, the word investment comes from this Latin word, and it means to clothe. That's what the word investment means, to clothe. Now, this word wasn't used to to describe everyday clothing. It was used for the description of official garments. In fact, if we were a church in the 13th century, this is how I might look. You know, this is called a vestment. It's it's an official garment that priests would wear that indicated their position of authority in the church. Now, we don't see a lot of those anymore. You can go into some churches, and they're still wearing vestments. But now, for the most part, the vestments are on the police officers and firefighters and judges and the military. You know, they're the ones that wear the vestments. We don't call them vestments. We call them uniforms, but that's what a vestment is. The clothing points to the position of authority. And the reason that this is important to understand is because God has vested each of us. You know, if you have a retirement account and you're vested in that account, what that means is you have authority. God has vested each of us. He has clothed us with resources and given us authority over those resources that represents our authority. Now, the vestment isn't visible. It's invisible, but it's very real. And so we all face this choice. The choice is vestment or investment. That's the choice. If our choice is simply vestment, what that means is we just get enamored with the robe. We kind of strut around with our authority and our resources, and we leverage it to benefit ourselves. It remains just simply a vestment. An investment takes that vestment and it puts it in something. We take on the responsibilities that those vestments represent. Now, the reason you don't see a lot of people strutting around in vestments anymore is because so many of the people throughout history wearing those vestments use those robes for personal gain. It was just about the vestment. They didn't invest. They, they cashed in on the vestment rather than invested. And so as we, as we look at 
the gifts that God has given us, as we look at the time that we have, as we look at the finances that we have, what we're really looking at is the robe that God has put on each one of us. He has vested us. And the question is, are we going to invest that? Are we going to put it to work for him? And respect goes to the investors, not those strutting around like peacocks in their vestment robes, maybe comparing vestments to each other. That's not how you build respect. You build respect as you invest. So as we work together, as we participate in the work of the church, this investment dynamic is part of what goes to work. The second dynamic is the interest dynamic. Investments generate interest. When you do your part, you're also growing your interest, your interest in God and in his work in the world. Interest is a byproduct of work, of investment. So we say if your money goes to work, what happens? It's earning interest. It's the same with us. If we go to work, what happens? We're interested. It generates interest. Now, the word interest also comes from a Latin word. This is the Latin word, and it literally means to be between. So if you want to put your money to work, you're going to have to put something between you and your money. You're going to have to part with it. And, and that something may be a bank, maybe the stock market, maybe some property, but you're no longer liquid. You, there, there's something now that's between you and your cash. That's what's required for interest. And it's the same thing occurs when we invest our lives. When you work, whether it's at a job or whether it's participating in the work of a church, it separates you from some of your resources. You now have less time than you did before. You now have less money because you've invested them. They're, they're gone. But the product of that separation is accrued interest. Something comes back to you because of that investment. Now, interest normally comes in two forms, and we use the word both ways. We use the word interest to indicate, indicate tangible benefits. You know, money comes back. We also use the word interest to indicate passion or interest in something. So interest comes as tangible benefits and as passion. So, for example, let's say I invest my money in a stock. I, I purchase stock in a company. Am I interested? Do I have any passion now about that company? Oh, yeah. I'm interested in that company. Why? Because that company now is between me and my money, and I'm always interested in my money. So now I'm interested in that company. Now, the benefits that may come from that investment, that usually takes time to accrue. But the passion, that kind of interest, is pretty quickly accomplished. It's almost instant. And it's important for us to understand that a passion for God will not grow just sitting here on Sundays. You may feel something. You may feel emotion, but a good lunch will erase all of that. You'll forget about whatever emotion or passion you felt for God. No, you, you have to work in order for that kind of interest to really be generated over time. You have to invest in what God is doing. You know, if I walk into a bank and I say, hey, I, I hear that banks give out interest and I'd like some. And they say, well, yeah, sure, what, you know, what's your account number? It's like, oh, I've, I've never made any deposits here. 
like, so you don't understand how banks work, right? We don't just give out interest. We give interest to account holders who have made deposits here. That's just the way interest works. We, we tend to think that passion is something that just kind of floats, but passion follows investment. This is why it's as we participate in the work of the church that we grow and are built up in love. By the way, as a side note here, this is true in every area of life. If the passion in your marriage is dwindling, I'm just going to guess there's been limited investment. You want the passion to go up? Well, in our culture, you just kind of wait for a feeling to come. That never is going to happen. You begin to make investments. If you just begin making some investments like you did at the beginning, passion usually begins to follow. Interest follows investment. So we participate in the work of the church. That's how we team together as a church. Secondly, we team together as a church as we support the church financially. Now, this is the money part of our investments. And for Americans, this is the part where we get real nervous. The investment we make is a two-sided coin. It's time and it's money. Now, depending on your situation and depending on maybe your wiring or gifting, you would prefer to give one rather than the other. Maybe you got more money than time, and so, you know, let me just give money. I don't want to give time. Or maybe you're short on money, so let me just give extra time. I don't want to give money. But God says, no, actually, an investment in a team like the church, it, it requires both sides. Why? Why does God even care about our money? Well, Jesus had a lot to say about money. Here's, what, here's one of the things he said in Matthew 6, 19 through 21. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You may have heard that phrase. It's very important to understand what he's saying here. Where your treasure is, your heart is going to be right there with it. So to help us understand how this works, I got a, a big heart balloon. Here it is. And I attached a dollar bill to it. I was thinking about how much should I attach, and I thought, well, I want this to last three services, so it's just a dollar. I figure no one's going to mess with, with a dollar. So we got a dollar bill attached to this. And this string here represents the fact that my heart, just like your heart, is attached to money. What we love, our heart, and our money go together. You can never separate these two. They, they just naturally go together. That's not a bad thing. That's just a fact. So if the heart moves, what happens? Money follows. This is why my wife and I can walk into Costco to get groceries and walk out with clothes for our grandkids. <laughs> How does that happen? Now, I know Costco is pretty good at doing stuff like that. But it's because of this, the heartstrings. Do we love our grandkids? Oh, yeah. So we see something, and my wife and I start talking about, well, that would be cute on them. I thought we were just going to do a quick trip for groceries. I mean, this is the Costco trap, right? So our heart moves towards our grandkids, and guess what? More than a dollar follows. That's, that's just the way it works. So Jesus is saying that not only does money 
follow the heart, but the reverse is also true. The heart will follow money. Heartstrings pull both ways. And the warning that Jesus is saying in this passage is that if we let our hearts do all of the pulling, we're going to end up loving and therefore building a treasure pile of things that are subject to rust and decay over time and things that can and eventually will be taken away from us. Because the heart just moves to what it sees in this world. But it doesn't have to be that way, Jesus says. We can actually lead our heart to love God. Now, we can't see God, so our heart doesn't just move that direction. But we can lead our heart to love God by giving our money to what will endure in heaven. Now, if we do that, Jesus is saying, we're going to end up with a different treasure pile. A treasure that is not going to rust. It's not going to decay over time. No one can steal it from us. Even when we die, it's never going to be taken from us. Now, the question that we have to ask is, how much money does it take to move a heart? Well, this is just a dollar. That's not, that's not going to move my heart at all. hundred dollars? You have my attention. thousand dollars? I'm moving. My heart's moving now. But instead of giving us an amount, because honestly, the amount is different for all of us, depending on our situation. So rather than giving us an amount, Jesus gave us a word, and the word is treasure. He says, for where your treasure is, where you're making treasure level investments, where your giving is of a treasure level, that's where your heart's going to be. That's what's going to move your heart. Well, how much is that? Well, again, it's different for each person. What's a treasure threshold level gift for me is probably different than a treasure level threshold gift for you. So the New Testament gives us a couple of indicators to let us know this is the threshold at which now you're giving at a treasure level. This is enough now to move your heart. Short of this, it might turn your head, but it's not going to move your heart. These are the two indicators of treasure-level giving. The first is thoughtful giving. Emotional giving will not lead your heart. Why? Because your heart has got a lot of emotions in it. If it's just, I feel guilty, or I feel excited, and so I'm going to give, then your heart is doing the leading, not the giving. So it's not a treasure-level gift. This is why 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. It goes on to say, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Notice that it's decided in your heart to give, not feel in your heart to give. A treasure-level gift is the result of a rational, clear, thought-out decision that is consistent whether your emotions are excited this week or not. It's giving that's done primarily because we have decided to, not because we feel like we want to. Emotions are temporary. It's kind of like stretching a rubber band, our emotions. Our emotions may stretch, but when the emotions subside, it goes back to its original state. A treasure pile grows when we decide to give, and we keep giving regardless of the emotions. The next indicator of a treasure level gift is proportional giving. 
As I said earlier, one dollar won't affect my heart. Why not? Well, it's because it's a small proportion of the money that I have. If all I had was five dollars, then one dollar would really move my heart. But I've got more than five dollars. So what percentage, what proportion would keep our hearts moving toward God? Now, if you were to ask us, okay, what percentage is it going to take to move your heart? We would all shoot pretty low. Why? Well, because we like money. We all do. So God gives us a number. You've probably heard of it. It's called a tithe. It means tenth, ten percent. Now, he doesn't explain why it's 10%, not 11, not 14, not 7, not 1.7 like the national average is. He just tells us this is what it is. But what I do know is for both myself and for the people that I know well enough to know that they're doing this and to see the impact on their life, I have never seen anything that's quite as effective as a tithe to move someone's heart towards God. I've seen it in my life, and I've seen it in countless lives around me. It is the most effective tool in moving my heart towards God and freeing me from the the unrelenting, continual pull of this world to live my life for the treasure piles that are here. Now, let me be honest. It is very, very rare for people to do this. I told you what the national average is. In the church, it's a little bit higher, but not much. About 3%. Why? Well, Jesus said why. Luke 16, 3, he said, No one can serve two masters. Either you're going to hate one and love the other, or you're going to be devoted to one and despise the other. You, and he's talking about the two masters of money and God. You cannot serve both God and money. What he's saying is that God and money are the top two contenders for the first place in our hearts. Now, we know this. I know this. I struggle with this on a weekly basis. The reason that money is such a top contender for God is because of how much money can do. It's almost godlike in what it can do. You know, I, I had a good friend that years ago said something that really resonated with me. He said, you know, I, I was at a point in my life where I had so many problems and it occurred to me, I don't think there's a single problem that I have that $100,000 couldn't solve. It's like, you know, that's pretty true. Now, I can think of some that $100,000 will not solve, but $100,000 would sure make the ones I can solve go a lot, feel a lot better. And so money usually wins because we can see it and we can see what it does for us. But we can't see God. And we can't always see, well, did God do that or did that just happen? We can't see all, all of what he's doing for us. And so in order to give 10%, You and I have to come to the conclusion that God is as real as what we can see. And that's a challenge because we need money. So if we're going to give it, what that means is we're going to have to trust God to provide. And this is the point where most people say, okay, God's not that real (laughs) to me. Now, they don't say this. They might not even admit to themselves, but that's what we're saying. 1%, 2%, that's great, but it's it's not going to really pull my heart towards God in a different direction. 10%, that does. Now this brings us to the third part of teaming together. We team together as a church as we follow leadership in the church within scriptural limits. 
In our culture, respect goes to the leaders, right? People on stage, people at the top of the organization. But one of the things Jesus taught over and over again is real respect goes to the servers, to the followers. That's where respect is really built. It's in following. So in Hebrews 13, 17, we read this, obey your leaders. It's speaking of leaders in the church in this context. And submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, we, especially in this country, we think of leaders as kind of a, an irritation. Not really a source of advantage to us. But what's the advantage? The advantage is leadership provides us an extra pair of eyes looking out for us. Now, this is very practical help. We may not like government, but if we didn't have government, we'd be in trouble. For example, we need government leaders. We need local government and state government leaders because, well, we don't have the time or the expertise or the money to build roads, and it sure helps to be able to drive on roads. And it's really helpful to have traffic signals. I remember one time traveling in Ghana, we came to an intersection in Accra, the capital city, and like most intersections in Accra, there were no signal lights. It took us an hour to get through that intersection because no one would budge. You know, you just basically had to kind of bumper cart all the way through that intersection. We don't have that problem. That's because we have competent leadership that's coming up with transportation and transportation laws that allow us to, that's an advantage to us. You know, the leaders on the job where you work, they have their eyes on growing the business. And that really helps you focus on your job and allows you to earn income that supports you and maybe your family. We simply cannot prosper without leaders. We don't have enough eyes looking out for all the needs we have. I mean, without leaders, it looks like Somalia. You know, it's just chaos. So if leaders are designed to be an advantage, it's God's gift to us, then why does leadership so often become a problem? Well, it's because the advantage comes with three conditions. And if you remove these conditions, the advantage is lost and actually turns into a disadvantage. So that's why you have to follow within limits. First of all, follow thoughtfully. Now, again, we're talking about the church context, but this applies in leadership in any context. You have to follow thoughtfully, not mindlessly. The first phrase in this Hebrews 13 passage says, obey your leaders. Now, that to us sounds like a mindless decision, but this was written in the Greek language, and the Greek word for obey here doesn't mean just uh, zombie it, follow. It means be easily persuaded. So if you hear a decision that the leaders made, let's just talk about church. If you hear a decision at church or even at work that you don't understand and you don't agree with, what should you do? First of all, don't be shocked. This happens all the time. Well, should you just keep to yourself, shut up, go along with it? Well, no, that's not helpful. 
Should you complain to other people about what leadership is or isn't doing? Well, that's very common, but again, that doesn't help the team. How about this? Should you process it with someone who doesn't really know any more than you do about the decision? Well, again, you can get all worked up, but get no understanding, so that doesn't help. What you need to do is ask questions of someone in leadership that can help you explain this. But the posture of your mind, and this is very important, needs to be, I'm willing to be convinced. I'm, I'm easily convinced. Now, this is a challenge. Because as soon as we don't understand something, immediately we react to it. That's stupid. That's ridiculous. I can't. That's not how you follow. You follow. It's like, well, that makes no sense to me, but I'm going to listen, and I'm going to put my heart in a position where you can convince me. I'm not going to be mindless on this, but I want to hear the thinking so that I might be able to be convinced and with a good heart join the team in following in this direction. You see, mindless following isn't helpful, especially in a volunteer organization like the church. You know, when I worked in advertising, people followed because they got paid. Now, that's a good motivation, but a deeper motivation is they really agree with what's, what we're doing. In a church, people follow because they're convinced. So you need to ask questions of people that you can get answers from. But what if you have asked those questions and you've heard the reasons and you still think, I don't agree. Should you just mindlessly go along? Well, again, that's not helpful. But how can a thinking person, which we all are, follow leadership when they disagree with the decision? Well, the only way you could do that is if you see more to the leader than meets the eye. If all you see is a person that you don't agree with, then you have no reason to follow them. But if you can see that God himself is standing behind that leadership, his authority is represented in that leadership, well, now that's more than just this leader. Now you have a reason to follow beyond even your understanding. And that brings us to the second condition of following, and that is follow willingly. Follow willingly. The phrase here, the next phrase, is submit to their authority. The Greek word that's used here literally means to yield. It's what we do whenever we merge onto the freeway. We let another car go in front of us. Now, why would you do that with a leader? Well, it's because God, the one who sees everything, is leading you through those he has put in authority over you. Most people don't understand this. And therefore, they don't get the leadership advantage, the following advantage. Most people think, even if they're seriously trying to follow God, they think that it's an exclusive one-on-one directing. That God himself is going to communicate with you about direction. Now, he does do that. But he also leads through leaders. There's a lot of protection, a lot of direction that comes through following authority. You see, in the Bible, there are examples of God communicating directly to individuals. But for most people, they followed God through the leadership that God was directing. You see, in the Bible, God, for the most part, is an incognito leader. You don't see him. 
He's hiding behind the face of the leader that he's put over you. And he leads and he protects us as we willingly follow the leaders he gives us. You know, one of the things that happens regularly to me is someone will come up Sunday after a service and say, you know, that verse you mentioned or that topic you were talking about, it was as if you were following me around all week and talking directly to me. So again, I've said this before. Let me just set the record. We do not have that kind of surveillance. (laughs) I, you know, I know what's going on in some of your lives, but most of your lives, I have no idea. But God does. I don't, but God does. So as I work on what it is that God wants me to say out of his word, and I speak those, not every Sunday, but many Sundays, God's giving you direction. You don't see God, you see me. But God's the one that's doing that in a way I don't understand, but it's real. If you look at your leaders and you only see them and nothing behind them, then you won't have the full advantage that God intends from following. And then the last condition is very important. You need to follow within limits. Every leader has to give an account. What that means is no leader is the ultimate authority. Everyone, leaders included, will have to give an account of their life to God. And that the leaders who do not have a clear sense of their accountability to God can be dangerous. One of the ways you can identify a leader who understands that they're accountable to God is when they make a mistake, they admit it. If a leader will never make, never admit to a mistake, then they don't understand that they're under authority. Because everyone's human. And leaders who do not have a clear sense of their accountability to God, they are dangerous. Why? They become their own moral compass. Now, good laws, like ones we have in this nation, can help keep bad leaders in check. But if, even with good laws, even if a leader sees only human eyes, the human eyes of the law looking, they will do whatever they can get away with because human eyes can't see everything. The best leaders understand that God is looking down on them and that they will have to answer to him. They understand that they're under authority. Now, the application for followers is this. Don't blindly follow a leader into doing something that's wrong. Now, God has given us leaders to be an advantage, but if we follow them to violate what he said in his word, then that advantage turns into a disadvantage. Now, let me be clear. I'm I'm talking about sin here, following them to sin. I'm not talking about a preference. You know, if you prefer the leader to do something and they don't do it, they haven't just sinned. They've just done something you don't want to do. And when that occurs, you have a choice. You can either follow because preference is preference, or you can, we're in a free country, you can leave and go somewhere else. But notice this, if you keep leaving If you keep moving companies, moving churches out of personal preference, you're not going to spend much of your life actually following. And therefore, you're going to miss out on a, a whole bunch of advantage that God has. Every time you leave a company, every time you leave a marriage, every time you leave a church, you got to start all over again. And you miss out on the advantage. Now, it's good to find a church that you prefer, and it's great to work for a company that you like, but it's actually more important that you follow somewhere than that all of your personal preferences are met. 
Tell pick a place. If it's not this church, that's fine. There's lots of churches. But pick a place and follow within the limits that God has given in his word. This is why we say follow leadership in the church within scriptural limits. If, for example, I, as the pastor of this church, lead us to violate scripture, and there's a big pull in our culture right now to violate scripture, if I lead us to violate scripture, don't follow me. I'm leading us into the ditch. Don't follow. All of the advantages that God gives to followers ends at the border of what he said in the Bible. Don't cross that line. You know, over the years, we've noticed people tend to relate to Seabreeze in one of three ways. If you've been around, you maybe have heard this, but these are the three ways that people tend to relate to Seabreeze. The first is, as they relate to this team, they're fans. You know, a fan of a team, you know, a particular church team, what that means is they're here on Sunday and other events as their schedule and their interest allows. You know, for example, I, I love hockey, so I'm a, I'm a Mighty Ducks fan. I've only been to probably four games this year. And I don't watch a lot of it on TV just because I don't have time. But I'm a fan. So when I have time and when I have the money, I'm going to go to a game. I'm a fan. And that's the way some people relate to Seabreeze. Nothing else is going on this weekend. They're here. Then there are the supporters. You know, they want to not only benefit from Seabreeze, but they want to contribute as well. They realize that, you know, it takes money to turn the lights on and pay the mortgage, and they want to help out, and that's great. And so they, they become supporters. Now, every team loves their fans and is grateful for their supporters, and that's the way we feel. But then there are the members. They're the ones that decide to commit to this church, and they actually join God's team here. They make a commitment. In two weeks, we're going to give you an opportunity to make this commitment and describe a little bit more about what that means. But like I said, fans are great. We're not putting fans down. What, what team puts its fans down? We love fans. Supporters are great. But you have to understand that respect is not given to fans, not even to supporters. Respect is earned on the field of play, not in the stands. This is where growth really occurs as a follower of Christ, is as we join his team and we work together. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to be a part of your team. And I know in a room with this many people, there's, there's many different places that people are, and I just pray that you'd give everyone here uh, insight from you about the next step you want them to take, whether this is the place to investigate, whether they need to make another step of commitment or whether it's somewhere else. But God, I pray you'd, you'd keep us from wasting our lives just wandering from one situation to the next and never really gaining the advantage that you intend as we follow and as we team together. Pray that you'd give us insight into our next step. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.